we are <clears throat> once again returning to this new series. We've interrupted our other series to be able to deal with this very important doctrine. We haven't dealt with it for some time within the church. <clears throat> and so I want us to come back and look at this because I think it becomes very relevant to us to understand the duty and responsibility that falls upon the church. Not just the pastors and elders, but falls upon the whole body of Christ in the church. We've entitled this Biblical Church Discipline. And we've kind of defined that title by saying we're looking at the confessional authority of the Reformed and Presbyterian Church discipline and all of its manifestation from the Holy Scripture as maintained in the covenant of church practice in the history of the Church of Jesus Christ from the beginning to the present. This is sermon actually number three, but it's a continuation of sermon number two. This is what happens when you have a Puritan background. You end up with more than you need, and you end up running sermons into other sermons. But we're dealing with the topic of the biblical authority for church discipline. Let's look to the Lord our God in prayer. Our Holy Father, we are so thankful that you have given us your word. It's not left up to the craftiness of man's desires and whims, but you have given us didactic, straight teaching, commands of how we are to understand and approach this awesome topic of church discipline. It's not an easy doctrine, but it is a doctrine that you've commanded. It's not an option, as we shall see. But we pray, O oh God, that as we come to it, we come with reverence. Remembering that our goal in church discipline is to save souls out of hell. Before people make those sinful practices that literally shipwreck their so-called profession profession of faith, well, it sounds good, but the words that are used, we know, O oh God, is not a living faith, a faith that has biblical fruit of thy spirit in governing, and that is self-governing, the life of a true believer. Help us, O oh God, as we go through this, 
We pray, O oh God, that you will give us eyes to see, hearts to receive, that which your word and Holy Spirit would teach us this day. For we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Now, you'll remember last Lord's Day, we began looking at section one of chapter 30 entitled of Church Centers. And you'll note what we said. Let me read again to you section one. The Lord Jesus as king and head of his church hath therein appointed a government in the hand of church officers. Their job is to exercise the authority thereof. Distinct from the civil magistrate. Now, of course, that's written in lieu of the fact that these were formerly what? ministers with the Church of England, and who was considered the head of the Church of England. It was the king or queen, depending on who's reigning. And they said, no, no, no. The church is not run by the civil magistrate. You have one head of both the civil magistrate and the church, the ecclesiastical magistrate. That's Jesus Christ. He governs by his law word. But both of them have their so-called magistrates who have to execute the responsibility of applying just law in both civil and ecclesiastical realms of the church and state. And when it comes to church government, this is not the responsibility of the man. Oh, the civil magistrate, if we decided next Sunday to bring our guns and shoot at each other, he has the right to come in and arrest us and say, you're disturbing the peace of the civil community. It's an acceptable activity. That overlaps. We understand. There's an area that he has a duty in that we are to be bound in. But the actual responsibility of the government and the administration of the government falls in the hands of those that have been gifted by the Spirit of God to be called to the duty of church officers. Now we looked at the Sion College of Ministers and what they had said concerning church discipline and I don't want to read through it again, but I do want to read the last part of their statement because I think it lays out the intended principle that they were arguing that was being held by and through and the teaching of the Westminster Standards. And they said the right or authority of biblical church government let this general proposition be laid down. Here it is. 
The scriptures declare that there is a government by divine right or authority in the visible church of Christ now under the New Testament. And we looked at 1 Corinthians 12, 28, where the scripture says God has set some of the church, first apostles, second prophets, thirdly teachers, helps, governments, and of course later the diagonet is added also into that system of government. Now, I want us to look at some of the scripture support. Before I do that, though, I want to come back and make an emphasis to you. I want you to get this understanding of why this is important. Three marks to a true church. The purity of the word preached or taught. Secondly, the right administration of the Lord's table and baptism. And third, church government and discipline. That meaning that the government organized disciplines the corporate body and its function and then there is the discipline that deals with the individual people. Now, when you leave off church discipline, you see there's a problem here. Because that means that you're not teaching the purity of the word. You've left that out. Therefore, you've said, we don't need the church. Well, that's a perversion of the commandment of God. Secondly, since the Lord's table is something that we're required to examine ourselves to our own self-discipline and if necessary to expunge you away from taking of the Lord's table, we're going to, to literally put you under discipline and say you cannot come till you deal with sin in your life. That doesn't take place because you don't have church discipline. Thus, with no church discipline, it's almost impossible to really have a true church. Because you're not going to preach the purity of the word. And if you're not going to preach the purity of the word, if you start off there, you're not going to end up with discipline. And you're not going to understand the right working of the Lord's Supper and its purpose. And thirdly, you're not going to have people who are going to try to care for your soul to keep it, as we will see out of Hebrews, to keep your soul out of hell. Now my job, and the church's jobs, and the elders' jobs, is not to send your soul to hell. It's not. It's to keep it out of hell. Now, there are times, Scripture's going to be very clear, when we come to church discipline, that you'll see in the discipline of the church, Paul will say, condemn them. Turn their souls over to Satan, for they are eaten up. They're governed by him. Let them receive exactly what they're asking for. But that's not what discipline's really about. And unfortunately, discipline's a really tough word, but you've got to understand its use. 
It comes from the concept of disciple. The goal is to disciple you back in. We teach you the word. We counsel with you with the word. We sometimes have to become very definitive about what the word says, and we have to defend the word. I don't know if you know it or not, but after 47 years of ministry, I've been down, having had a counseling service for over 30 years and having to deal with church discipline in the church, you begin to read people pretty good. As soon as you get somebody that does a sin and you try to deal with it, you're going to find out exactly whether they are open to the truth and they want to do what pleases God according to his word, or whether they're going to become defensive, oversensitive, and they're going to justify their sin. But by the way, they don't call it sin. They may say, well, I've made a few mistakes. Well, unfortunately, most of those mistakes are sins. And they, they're going to, they, and it's amazing. It never fails. I can tell you what's coming. You start dealing with people and you say, but this is what the word of God says. I don't get it. I don't understand it. This is, theology is too complicated. You're making it too hard. But as soon as they decide to take of the same sin of Adam and Eve, to exercise their will, that they could determine what is right for them, what do they do? They become wise in their own eyes. Then they go from ignorant novices in the word to theologians. Oh, they now know everything. Doesn't matter you spend 12, 14 years in college and graduate schools to study the word to become one who can be and practice and pass the exams to get into the church, they can do it in a week. It is amazing. There is an actual psychology to this, and I'll go into it. I'll lay it out from Scripture to show you. Go into it all the time. I can tell you exactly. I can get a wife and a husband into counseling and she's weeping and crying and wants to do what's right, and he's going, I'm not that bad. I know he's going to try to justify his actions. But when he says, I failed, but I want to do what's right, then I know he's going to work on it. It's going to change. You know why? Because who rules in him is the Spirit of God. Christ, his Savior, is convicting him to make changes. People, we all make mistakes. We all commit sins. We all don't handle things the best we ought to handle them. But you know one thing about real Christians? Their desire. It's to be right with God. But to be right with God, you 
You've got to be right with the word. And that's the rub. They don't want to do the word of God. And that's where you say, we got a problem. I told you. I've never counseled anybody that I've said to them, you can violate the law of God all you want. Go out and steal, go out and kill, go out and lie. I've never said that. I've always said to them, God holds us to the standard of his word. I never go out and tell people, oh, guess what's happened in our church? Let me tell you about these people. I don't do it. You know what I hear from those who are in sin? They've spread it everywhere. We're evil. The good guys in that church, they wear black hats. We turn out to be the bad guys simply because we're trying to get them to live the way the scripture says to live. They don't want to do that. But hey, we're Romans 12. Our job is to call them to Christ. We don't get Romans 13. That's a civil magistrate job. He can punish them because he's got the power of the sword. You see, if we had the power of the sword, we could have sit down simply in any meeting and discipline at any time in our church and just pull out a gun and say, well, you know what? You're going to repent or we're going to send you straight in front of God. That's not our job. We can't do that. We have no right to do that. Oh, we can say to him, there's no dealing with you. You will not repent. So therefore, we will clearly enunciate your rebellion. It's no different than witchcraft. You might as well be a witch. That's what you're saying. I'm not going to listen to God. Do whatever I want to do. All we can do is say, then, you know what? We can't allow ourselves to fellowship with you. I'm going to show you that. We don't shun people. We're not Amish. I've told you that. If I see somebody that's been in a relationship with us and they got disciplined and they rejected the word and they would not hear, I still will be friends and talk to them. I'll ask them, how are things going in your life? Because they think they're going to say to me, well, I'm telling you, we, we don't like the way you dealt with this. My answer is, I, I'm sorry, I don't listen to that. You're just spreading your lie and sin. Now I'll be happy to be courteous, kind, as a Christian to you. That's required. The same I would do with a person who isn't a believer. I don't go out and punch non-believers in the nose. I love them, but you know how I love them? I keep the law of God toward them. It's not a touchy-feely thing. It's not a thing that says, you know what? Go ahead and sin. Just sin all you want to. I can't say that. I, you know, that's what they want. I want to do my own thing. I'm sorry. You and I don't get the option of doing 
our own thing. And so for us to be a church, you got to have all three things. And the third implies that we're going to have to not only discipline the church, but discipline the members of the church when there is sin and rebellion against the word of God. I never forget when I was young. My parents somehow got a hold of that old saying when they whipped me, well, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. I had no idea what that meant because I didn't see them cry when they whipped me. And I got whipped and it hurt. I had a brother that would do whatever my mother said. He was Mr. Goody Two-Shoes. Well, I mean, she'd tell him, and he'd believe everything. I came along six and a half years later, and I just believed I had to push the envelope the other way. And my mom couldn't figure it out. How come I get the first one, and he's doing everything I tell him to do? I get the second one, and he's pushing against everything that he ought to be doing. God taught me a hard lesson. A hard lesson. Taught my parents a hard lesson. There's got to be consequences for actions. Because God has consequences for your actions. This thing of, well, God's going to let me in and going to just accept me the way I am, even if I've done wrong, it ain't going to... I got news for you, it does matter. And you might be deceiving yourself straight into hell. Why do we do church discipline? We're trying to keep you in a right relationship with God. But to be in the right relationship with God, you've got to be doing the word of God. Not some mystical thing. Oh, I'll go out here and I'll get along with God. Well, good. Get along with God. And get your life and disciplined with the word. But don't cut the word out. I can't cut the word out. You can't cut the word out. It's the word that governs us. Now, I was raised in a denomination church that, while they would say that, they never did it. Never. Never, never, never. We had a man, he's dead now, so I guess he won't care if I talk about him. He was our youth pastor. While he was our youth pastor and assistant pastor in the church, he was arrested twice for exposing himself to women. I think you understand what that means. I don't want to go into more detail. Guess what he ends up being again? The youth pastor. That really makes sense, doesn't it? He said, well, you know, man, I'm sorry. And he found every excuse in the world. And they just restored him. Well, he said he's sorry. 
But you know, when you say you're sorry and you say you're going to repent of sin, the Bible says with true repentance comes fruit that demonstrates the repentance is sincere. Years later, he ended up with another man's wife in the church. And it wasn't just him. There was a group of them, and they were swapping wives. And they swore up and down. If I ever pass through a church, there's going to be some things I won't do. And one of them is I'm not going to let the church live in sin and act like nothing's going on. What a reproach to the name of Christ. Our church had a very bad name. Because it got out. Oh, it wasn't the men of the church that were running the church that went around and told it. It was the people in sin. And then the word gets out and the community goes, holy cow, what are they running up there? Well, it wasn't much of a church. I had one guy come in, didn't stay long, assistant pastor, youth director, and I heard him tell that deacon, who was a very good friend of mine, I've seen more people come through the front door of that church and go out the back door. You could have started 10 churches. He said, this church has got a really filthy reputation. We don't want that. Far be it from us that we would be known as a church that allows people to sin. That's why we do church discipline. We are supposed to be epistles read by men. Do we do everything perfect? Of course not. You're sinners saved by grace. And you'll still have a propensity to do some things wrong that violate the word of God, that require us to repent. That's why we are constantly in church discipline. Our self, self-discipline. That's why we're constantly examining ourselves before we come to this table. Because there is not only a blessing when you come and you are constantly examining your life, but there is a curse when you come and eat and you're not worthy because you trample underfoot the blood of Christ. We're not playing church. We're supposed to be living. A living church. An organic body of people who have come into a personal relationship with Christ. And you're going to run into all kind of allegations. I'll never forget when we first started training the men. We were having our seminary studies. Some issues come up and they said, how often did this happen in the church? And I said, welcome to the church of Jesus Christ. These things are going to come up and you're going to either get those who want to do what's right or those who want to do what they want to do and they're going to fight you the whole way. 
and you never once ask them to do so. We didn't say, well, look, could be like a church we know of out there and say, you committed this sin? Hey, give me 5,000 bucks and it'll go away. We don't do that. We don't allow the violation of the word of God. We can't. We can't play games. It's not that kind of a society. Why? Because we say that we love our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is our king. He's the head of our church. That's what section one I just read you. And to demonstrate that, he has given us a word, a revelation, a law, a moral responsibility to both act out in our life daily and to employ those who are officers called to the church to execute it in the church for the saving of their soul. I'm going to show you that in Scripture. It's all coming. And the word of God says, and this is the neat thing, I think that's very interesting. It anticipates the very problem. It says, Obey those who have rule over you, for they look out for your soul. Let them do it with joy. Let them rejoice in the fact that you are obeying them. Obeying them. Sounds like a pig Latin term, doesn't it? Obey. Obeying them. And do not make them grieve. And the Lord knew. Church discipline always comes with grief. When there is no repentance that bears fruit of the work of the Spirit. Well, let's look at the Scripture that is given as evidence to this first section. Now, here's the point. Christ is the head of his church. You know what that means? As king. I want you to think back in the time of the Middle Ages when the Bible was translated into English and you had kings, basically, back in that time period. We don't have one in America. We've got a president. But a king had sovereign power and authority. All authority. Not partial authority. All authority. Noblemen could only act on behalf of the king. Church officers can only act on behalf of Christ, our king. And so it is to the church, this king has said, this is my church. It's my authority. Whatever I say, that's what goes. And you don't change it. You can't make it up as you go. You cannot do what you like. It's not given to you because I've laid down the principles in Scripture. My church, my way, or you're going to find yourself on the other end of my judgment. That's the real trick of this whole thing is 
We're trying to keep you out of hell. I mean, literally, we're trying to keep you out of the judgment of God. How do you end up in the judgment of God? You violate the word of God. And the king says, you know what? When I said you go this way, I did not tell you to take that road to try to get around to this. I said go down this road and you do it this way. Nothing else is an option. I had to learn that. There's consequences when I don't listen to the direction it gives me. So what's his church? The Apostle Paul speaks of the visible church. In 1 Corinthians 12, beginning at verse 7, listen to what Paul says about the church. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Because we are all a part of the Spirit of God. We've been baptized. We've been washed in the Spirit of God. We've all become a part of the body. And out of that is going to be a prophet, especially in the early church, where you didn't have the New Testament completed. They were partially living off the concepts of the Gospels, which they had parts of, and the Old Testament. But having the fruit of the Spirit is that we're all saying the same thing. Not different opinions. That's why we don't have Bible studies and say, well, what's your opinion? I really don't care what your opinion is. What does the Word of God say? What does the Word of God actually say? And I'm not interested in your opinion. Tell me what the Word says. Interpret it properly. So we only allow those who are qualified to teach. And we make sure they're qualified by educating them. Now he goes on, verse 8. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, verse 9, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing, by the same Spirit, and this is what he's telling the early Corinthian church. To another, the working of miracles, to another, prophecy, to another, discerning of spirits, to another, different kinds of tongues, to another, the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works in all things. You follow the principle? The early church was gifted with a lot of things, and everybody in the church was being gifted, but not all the same gifts, different things. But it's only one spirit. Thus, everything that they had to contribute was to the benefit of the whole body, together, helping one another. Distributing, the scripture says, to each one individually as what Christ wills. These are according to the will of Christ. For, now note very carefully what he says. For as the body is one and has many members, you got the principle of the one and the many, the body, the church, is one in Christ. One because of the spirit that indwells us. But it's made up of many members. But all the members of that one body, being many, 
are one body, so also is Christ. Well, what happens when somebody says, wait a minute, I'm not going to do what the Word of God says. I'm not going to listen to the body of Christ. The body of Christ has to say to them, wait a minute, if we're all drinking from the same Spirit and we're all living according to the same Word, you're out of accord with the Word, we cannot permit that in our body because evil will beget evil. Sin will become more sinful the longer it manifests itself. It's like cancer, people. Let me give you an illustration. You get cancer, what do you do? You try to get it early. Why? So you can cut it out or so you can treat it that it's gone and it doesn't spread because once it begins to spread, your chances of living really go down fast. Well, once sin begins in the church and you let it go, It's just like it was when you were a kid. Well, Jimmy got away with it. How come you're picking on me? He, he didn't do right. I should have the same right to do and not you say anything to me. You remember how we were when we were kids? That's because we didn't have the Spirit of God in us, most of us. We live by the whims of the world. I'll be like God determining right and wrong for myself. Well, Paul also compares this church of God to a visible organic body consisting of many visible members, verse 12 and on. And in this 28th verse, he enumerates the visible officers of his church, which we've already looked at. Now, secondly, the apostle speaks of one general visible church. For he says, not churches, but the church. Now, I already kind of went over this. I'm just recovering because you've got to understand. We call it the universal visible church. Besides, he speaks of the church in such latitude or scope as to comprehend itself and all the gifts, and not all those would be just in one church. Third, the apostle then speaks, why? Of this general visible church here meant the church that is now under the New Testament because he names the officers. Therefore, in the visible church now under the New Testament, there is a settled government by divine authority. God gave to the church he didn't say, okay, well, you know what? You can have all these different forms of church government. That's okay. No, <laughs> doesn't work that way. One government, according to the word of God, and nothing more. It's not autocratic. It's not democratic. But it is a Republican form of government. The law is king, and the representatives of the people that are office holders represent them before God with an agreement to oversee the people of God, to keep them in line with the law, which is their king. 
It's what governs their lives. So we have these officers of apostles, prophets, teachers. And then the church governments and the deacons eventually are brought in. And so it is, laying that foundation, let's now move on. In Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, this is where we left off. We're not going to get a lot of time. Here again, too long of a commercial. But listen to what Isaiah the prophet states. For unto us a child is born. He's talking about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. He is the one that carries the government of God's kingdom forward. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. You and I cannot advance the kingdom of God. That comes under the authority of Jesus Christ. And we can only advance it even in our own life through the Spirit. But as far as the outward advancement of the kingdom, he has called those he has gifted to be officers in his church to advance his cause through them, the representative who here dwell upon the earth, who are governed by what? His law word. And then he says, he's upon the throne of David and upon his, and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with what? Judgment and with justice from henceforth forever. Judgment and justice. You've got to have that in church government or it is worthless. You're seeing that in America today. No judgment, no justice based upon the one true law simply means injustice and the government is not a government that is representative, that a government that is based upon the law word of God but it is a government that has operated outside of a biblical understanding of what any government ought to be. And there's going to be injustices. How do you know what injustices are? When they violate the word of God, his law, that's the injustice. It's not man-made law. That's the kind of stuff Adam and Eve were trying to do in the garden. It's God-ordained law. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will, what? Perform this. No justice, no judgment. You don't have a church. You don't even have a real manifestation of the kingdom of God. In spite of all the happy-clappy, Tongue speaking, pig squealing, 
ducks clucking, whatever they do, cluck or quack, chickens clucking. I don't care how many times you roll down the aisle, fall over backwards, doesn't mean anything. Religion's religion. The real church is seen as one that is built upon the shoulders of Christ and there is judgment and justice in that church. Christ will establish his government and put it into form and order. And you can't twist the scripture to make it say what you want to say. It's what it says and you've got to implement it that way. He's enacted laws for the church, for its members, the writing of these laws on their hearts because of the spirit that indwells them who was the one who wrote the word for man. Christ will put his spirit within them and enable them to keep his laws if they indeed are truly converted and not given to lip service alone. Christ will be setting censures, rulers or church governors over them under him as king and head of the church. And their job is to execute his judgment, his justice, not their own. This includes the pastors, teachers, and the rulers or church governors, commonly called ruling elders, to explain Christ's law and enforce them among the members of the church, both corporately and individually. They are to teach them to observe all things commanded by Christ, to whom he gives those gifts for usefulness and service to the body of Christ towards the development of their righteousness and whose ministry he blesses for the conversation and the gathering of others to his own glory. By this authority of discipline, Christ will restore or heal and glorify his church and his kingdom. Discipline is key. It's important. It's key. It's key to the church. No judgment, there'll be no justice. And then it just depends on what they like or don't like that will determine whether or not you're going to be in favor or out of favor with the officers of the church. I'm sorry, God doesn't give us that ability. Not to be nice, but unfortunately, he's going to hold us accountable to do exactly what we are to teach you to do. We don't escape judgment either. As a matter of fact, to he who teaches, a greater judgment is enumerated to us. We're being held accountable to do what Christ has commanded us to do in setting up the government of his church. Judgment and justice.
according to the law of God's word. We read in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and spake to them, saying, All power is given unto me, that's Christ, in heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore and teach all the nations, the word nations, ethos, meaning teach all the families of the earth, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to what? To be good students? No. Teaching them to observe discipleship. To observe. That means to live by what is being taught. All things whatsoever what? The elders have decided is right. No, no. I have commanded you. It's got to be in the word. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. And then in Acts 20 and verse 17 and 18, here again it states, And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. And what does he say to them? These are to the elders. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock. Examine yourself, self-discipline. You are what? You're supposed to be the leader of the flock. I gifted you and called you for that. Take heed to yourself and then take heed to your flock. You know what he's saying? Make sure your flock is living the same life you've been called to live, over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. Oh, you mean this office wasn't something I got to pick? Oh, no. You had to have the gifts. The church is responsible to determine, do you have the gifts to teach? And if you've been given the gifts and the fruit of the Spirit is shown in your life to have those gifts... That is an official appointed office. Do you know why it's so important to understand that? Because to that office, he's made his censures. And you know what he says? Whatever we bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever we loose on earth will be loose in heaven. We've been given the keys of the kingdom of God. And when somebody sins, we can bind them to their sin, turn them over to God and say, we've dealt with them. We've done everything we can do. They will not listen. You now have to take over. But as you will see, as we go through this, you really don't want God to deal with you. Actually, believe it or not, the officers of the church are much more gentle than the way God is when he deals with your sins because he wants justice. And you might think, well, he hasn't judged me yet. Give him time. Like a dog, we're running, we're hooked up to a chain and 
We got 30 feet on it, but eventually you hit the end of the chain and it chokes you. God doesn't always judge immediately. Sometimes he lets the sinfulness of your sin consume your whole being. And then he hangs you. It's too late. You've gone from this life to the next. You're standing before God and he's looking at you and going, I've never loved you. You've never loved me. I don't care what you say. Matthew, remember what he said? But have we not called out Lord, Lord, in thy name we've done this. We've done. He said, I don't love you. I don't care what you say. Words have no meaning that are not based on action. It's simply blowing into the wind. You talk a good talk. Oh, it sounds right. But you know what? I'm looking at your life. No, no, no. You're not that. And so he says, what are we to do? Feed the church. That's what you've been gifted for. That's what we do come here for. I don't come here to tell you stories about motherhood and apple pie. Hopefully I make you cry. I'm not trying to feed you emotionalism. I'm trying to teach you the word of God. Our pastors, all four of us, are trying to teach you the word of God. We just want you to live by the word. If that makes us bad, so be it. God says it makes us just and it makes us right with him. It makes you out of a compliance with the word. And you know what that makes you? It's very logical. You're either a follower of Christ in obedience or you're not. And so what does the church eventually have to do if you will not repent? They need to say, this person is not a Christian. And he's going to give us a command. I'll read it to you. You do with it what you like. But I'm saying... If you're part of the body of Christ, you're going to have to seriously deal with it. He'll say, have nothing to do with them. Didn't say shun them. Didn't say be unkind to them. Didn't say violate the word of God. Go out and tell lies about them. Just cut them off. No, we're not going to tolerate your sin. But you can't violate the word of God toward them. We never can do that. That church, why? Why does he put such an emphasis? It is this. It's very simple. Christ shed his blood to redeem his people. Now, if a sovereign God decides to create A universe. And on one planet he puts people in his image. And he says to them, according to my plan, you're going to fall into sin and I'm going to redeem my elect people out of you. And how will you know that they're my elect people? They're going to live by the word. They're disciples. You'll know them by their fruit. Not by their words, by their fruit you'll know them. 
And every word that proceeds out of their mouth, if it's not backed up by fruit, it's just hot air blowing in the wind. It means nothing. But in order to redeem them, I'm going to give my son to die. He's going to shed his blood on a cross to suffer the pains in order to redeem you from the eternal judgment of God. Do you really believe he's going to let you walk all over his son's blood and you not face the wrath of God? Wake up! These are eternal things. Yeah, they're not happening right now. Yeah, the church says, hey, this person's way out of accord. They won't do what you're supposed to do. We've got to. We've been dealing with them. We've got to mark them out and say, this is what God says to do. And these people have no whatsoever, no fruit of repentance. They have nothing that says, I'm a believer in Christ. have nothing to do with them. Can you as a Christian who loves God because of what he's done for you, for your eternal security to be with him forever, can you just allow him to walk? Will you not be offended when they walk over the law of God, when they violated and they have violated the very son that kept it so that we could have Life through him and redemption? You see, the church is involved in church discipline. It ought to be the church coming and saying to the elders, hey, this guy's really out of line. You've got to go talk to him. That's how offended you ought to be. We can't allow these kind of sins to go on. Yeah, we're all sinners and we all are constantly trying to judge ourselves or ride with God. But I'm telling you, when people live in their sin and will not repent, there is no reason to believe, the scripture is basically saying, that these people have anything to do with Christ. I don't care how they flap their lips Hot air means nothing to God. Empty slogans mean nothing. Just because you sang hymns or you went to a church, you were religious, big deal, said prayers, so do all the other world religions. You're not going to get him into heaven. You're not going to trample underfoot the blood of Christ. Ain't going to happen. Why? There is one king who is the head of the church. He's laid down his law, his government, his law of how you will abide in him by the power of the spirit. And you know what? We used to have an old saying when I was in college. When God saves you, he changes your want to. You used to want to do what you wanted to do the way you wanted to do it. And once you become a believer, you no longer wanted to do it your way. He changed your want to. You want to do what pleases him. And you cannot be happy when our Lord is not pleased. 
I beg you, search your heart. Do you really want to please God? Live by the word. If I never have to get into church discipline again the rest of my life till I die, which probably won't be many years, I could do it with joy. If I could just say, Brother, you're out of line here. Let's let's get you back in here and let's do what's right. Let's get you back on the playing field to do what is right. If I can use a sports illustration here. You ran a foul. You went off the field. You got to get back into the game because you don't want to dwell here. The longer you're out of the game, it's not looking good for yourself. I don't want you to be there. I want you to be right with God. And if that makes me a bad guy, so be it. But I'm not the one running around telling lies and stuff to people, trying to get people on their side. They always do that. They're in sin. So they got to justify their evil. And it only takes one thing. I will repent. Tell me what I need to do. Teach me how to live by God's word. It's over. Great. We got you back in play. We're teaching you. We're teaching you how to live the life. Although both failures... You're not perfect. <laughs> I don't expect that of any of you. I've never asked any of you to be perfect. I've just asked you to be warriors for Christ and fight sin in your life. Put it to death. We've all got sin. We've all got to do it. But the difference is Christians will do it with what? Joy. Out of obedience. Because when sin is not repented of, God will bring the repentance around if you're a Christian. Look at King David, and we'll look at that. Look what it cost him for his sin. The baby dies. Remember, he took another man's wife, and he had the man killed so he could take her, her husband, put him out in front of the battle so he would die. Baby dies. One brother rapes his sister, the other brother kills the other brother for doing it, and that son turns against David. Sin will come into your life to bring you to repentance. That's the way God dealt with Israel. Israel get to the point of being in sin so far, God would send a nation down, and they'd hold them off into captivity, discipline until the people start praying, God, deliver us. What must we do to be delivered, oh God? Live by my word. You remember what he'd do to those who did that? Then he'd say, okay, now we're going to go back to that people for touching you. Even though I sent them, go back and I want you to... Did you ever see God's warfare in the Old Testament? You ought to be afraid of God because I'm afraid of God. He says, you go in there and you kill man, woman, child, animals, 
burn it to the ground, put down salt, scorch it so that nothing will live. Bring nothing out with you. I'd hate to fight against his army. Because he's got a scorcher policy that is out of this world. But he'll deal with you and I that way in our own personal lives. When you're in sin, he's got a way of breaking you. If you're truly a believer, he won't let you live in sin for long. But if you're living in sin and not repenting, and there is no judgment, you ought to be scared. Because something's wrong. Please, please, please. If you love Christ, defend Christ. Be offended when people sin. Seek the purity of his word and his church in all things. This is where we come to take refuge together. We come to hear the word of our king. Speak to us, King Jesus. Consider these things very carefully, please. Because these are eternal issues that do not go away. Shall we pray?